And now, coming to you live from the Gershwin Room, high above the Coot Street Motel 6, it's Jonathan Strahan and Gary K. Wolf with very special guest World Fantasy Award winning writer Elizabeth Hand on the Coot Street Podcast! Yay! Okay, okay, Liz, you're right in the spirit of it. Um, <laughs> Thank you. Yes, hi, hi. Great to be here. Wonderful to have you back with us again. After all this time, I think it was like 140 po- podcasts ago or something, so. Welcome back. Wow. Yeah. Well, thank you. I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> I don't know. What, what were we talking about back then? Was it was that before Radiant Days came out? It had to be, maybe even before that. Oh, my God. I can't remember. Is it 140 podcasts ago? This is like, you know, trying to convert dog years to human years. How many... How many years is that? How many podcasts? It's about four years worth ago, I think. Three or four years ago, it would have wow. been. Wow. Yeah. So that probably was Radiant Days. That sounds that about was a right. A long time ago. <laughs> so, so it's it's been a while. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to say though it would be pointless just to say. So, what have you been up to? But uh, it, it is great to have you back with us and to get a chance to talk about, amongst other things, Wilding Hall, which is about to come out into the world. Yes, yes. Well, I'm delighted to be here. So it's always fun it's, to it's, talk it's, to it's, you guys. Now, Wilding Hall in the PS um, edition should be out about now, shouldn't it? Uh, I think it's coming out in July, so oh. not quite yet. It's, it's It actually already came out in the Audible edition, so the audiobook is out, and the uh, PS and Open Road editions, I think, are going to be coming out within the next month. Okay. The Audible's edition is a fascinating idea about this particular book, and we probably ought to tell people what it's about, because... Unlike most of your stories, it has multiple voices in it, um, and that always fascinates me when you're talking about an audiobook. Yeah, it was well. The book is um, it's sort of written almost as like a a, a mock um, oral history of mm-hmm. of a band, which mm-hmm. is the kind of book that I love to read. You know, books like. Um, Please Kill Me, the oral history of punk by Legs McNeil and Jillian McCain, or, or Edie, the George Plimpton and yeah. Dean Stein book, oh, yeah. which sort of invented the genre. I, I, love, I love those books. So I, I wrote this novel as though it was that kind of a, uh, a nonfiction book. Which, so it has about, I think, maybe eight or nine uh, different people who are telling basically the same story, sort of a Rashomon kind of thing. They're each telling the same story. Mm-hmm. Um, and in the uh, Audible audiobook, I, I was a little concerned because I thought, oh, well, how are they going to do this if they don't like get actors to do all the voices, which is a very mm-hmm. expensive thing to do. But in fact, they got actors to do all the voices. <laughs> oh, great. And so it's... Yeah, so it's really a, it's it's a fantastic production. It it really is great. I um I feel like I probably should have just written it as a, a as a play rather than a book because it works really really well. Um you know, better than I could have imagined. I, I was uh, I was thinking when I was reading it that this would be a terrific radio play. Yeah, well if you if you have not heard the audiobook, I'm not kidding, it's really it's fantastic. I feel like I can't even take any credit for it because the acting is so good. It's all of these British actors that they hired and they they do all the voices. And usually with audiobooks they um uh and I know this because I've talked to some of the um you know, the actors and readers who've done my own books, but then I also have a good friend in London who is an actor who does audiobooks, and they don't want you. They, they don't want the reader of the book to do the voices. They they basically want to have a somewhat neutral narrator. Um, but they did not do that with Wilding Hall. It actually it it sounds like a radio play. Um, so it's really it's fantastic. I was really really pleased by it. Um, they just did a, a beautiful production. Did hearing it perform change how you th- looked at the story at all, or, or how you felt about it? Did did the form? Did uh, hearing it performed? Oh, hearing it performed. Yeah, it was very strange because it um, it it didn't sound like um, you know I it, I felt quite detached from it. I I felt like I was listening to something that did not really have anything to do with me. 
Um, I used to feel like this when I when Paul Woodcover and I we did a um, a comic for DC Comics in the 1990s, and when I you know every month when we would get the boards that the artist would do, you know, and we I would see the illustrations. We had you know written the dialogue and obviously come up with the story arc and everything else, and then you would see the comic illustrated and i was like oh my god that just you know where did that come from <laughs> so it, it was kind of like that listening to to the audiobook it's really um it's really mm. it was really wonderful <laughs> first question that comes to my mind is how could they do an audiobook of this without that is without some e examples of what the music must have sounded like because it seems to me music is central to this and as i think i mentioned to you when we were talking the other day i kept I kept wanting to go over to my storage locker and dig out my <laughs> yes. string band. Get out the incredible string band. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Listen to some of this stuff. Your old oh, Fairport albums. Yeah, uh, exactly. Yeah, but I, I, there was no I, I, music. I, I, I didn't even realize until after I'd read this that Sandy Denny had died years ago. Um, yeah, she fell down a flight of stairs. It's very sad. Well, yeah. look, we should talk a little bit then, or you should give our listeners a little bit of background about why we're talking about the early 70s British folk revival and bands like Fairport Convention. Uh, so how does music fit into this story? Well, Wilding Hall is, um, that it's the name of the novel, it's a short novel, and it's told uh, basically in the form of an oral history of a fictional band named Wind Hollow Fair that was uh, 1970s acid folk band in, in Britain, and I modeled the band loosely on Fairport Convention, but also on a number of other groups like the Incredible String Band and the Watersons and uh, individuals like Nick Drake. And um, in the novel, the band, Wind Hollow Fair, the members of the band, after their... Um, uh, their female lead singer dies under mysterious circumstances, and their manager, to kind of help them, you know, get over it, move on, rents a, a decrepit stately home in Hampshire, in the country, in the English countryside, and arranges for them to stay there for the summer to kind of recuperate and get over this tragic loss, and also to rehearse and. Um, uh, get ready to record new material. And the name of the, the stately home they go to is Wilding Hall, and that becomes the name of the album, Wilding Hall, which comes out of their, their uh, summer there. And during the two months when they are at Wilding Hall, they are rehearsing and having this kind of magical experience. They're all, you know, teenagers or in their early 20s and kind of have the run of this beautiful place um, with... Um, nobody else around watching them but something inexplicable happens to their lead singer songwriter who's sort of uh, loosely inspired by Nick Drake there is mm -hmm. a, a supernatural element that intrudes and um, all of these things conspire to create what becomes this really classic album called Wild and Hall but pretty much the experience of writing this music and and um, laying down some tracks for it sort of destroys the the group and um, destroys one of the people who's in, in the group, Nick Drake, um, not Nick Drake, Julian Blake, who's a Nick Drake <laughs> character, who sort of, who sort of disappears. Um, so it, the story draws a, a, a lot on kind of the folk music of that period, which was a really very beautiful and eerie and visionary music. And there's a wonderful book that came out a few years ago called Electric Eden by Rob Young. And it's a history of the British folk um, scene in the 1970s. But it, it traces this music going back to the late 19th century and having its roots in um, writers like Arthur Mackin. And um, just, you know, he, he really draws in all the literary strange and often supernatural influences that sort of came to fruition years later with this folk scene in the 1970s. So it was, um, 
it was kind of really ripe material to play with for a supernatural novel. I remember talking to Robert Holstock once, uh, who also was apparently very influenced by that, that kind of music. And in retrospect, uh, thinking about the music again, uh, there's a kind of... Uh, uh, Mathago Wood came years after the British folk revival, but there seemed to be a connection there that, 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 that Rob confirmed when I talked to him about it. Yeah, well, there, you know, there's this very famous line from Graal Marcus about American folk music, and he talks about um, the old, weird America and how mm. the old, weird America fed, you know, American blues music and roots music and bluegrass music and then ultimately rock and roll. Mm-hmm. And in Electric Eden, Rob Young really, you know, makes this great argument that in in England, in Britain, in Great Britain, in the British Isles, there was this, you know, the old weird Britain. <laughs> <laughs> there was this ancient uh, tradition of music and folklore that fed into this very, very rich um, kind of river of, of myth and lore and legend that um, came out in the music. And and I and I think and I'm sure people like Rob, um, you know, Rob Holstock, people like Alan Garner, I think on you know on this side of the ocean, Ellen Kushner, there's you know quite a few people have drawn on that for um, supernatural mm-hmm. or fantasy or, or dark fantasy. I mean, it you know if you read any of these, uh, if you read the words of any of these old ballads, they a lot of them are you know they're ghost stories. Or their stories about you know fairy brides or fairy bridegrooms, so they're de- definitely dealing with the same material that that we deal with, but, but they've been dealing with it for you know a lot longer time. And I suppose there's got to be got to be a lot of story potential in looking at a period when a modern sensibility comes into contact with that older, weirder England and its you know, mythology and folk environment. Oh, definitely. And and as somebody who grew up during that period, you know, in the late 60s and the early to mid-70s, there there really was something in the air. You know, I I was a young teenager then, so, you know, I wasn't old enough to be at Woodstock or anything like that. But there really, the, the culture had really been permeated by this sense of, the supernatural and, and the occult and the sense that things could really happen, you know, the way that our lives, to, and, and Gary, you know, you may remember this, I think, Jonathan, you're probably too young, but, <laughs> <laughs> but you know, the way that now um, things like social media impact our lives and we just sort of take it for granted that you know with it's a certain way of dealing with pop culture and a certain way of dealing with the you know the the general culture well well back then there was a lot of that same kind of crossover that you got from you know supernatural or occult elements you know there was there was all this stuff with the ching and the you know and the tarot mm-hmm. and, and ESP and, and all of this. And, you know, and not just for hippie teenagers. It was, it, you know, it, it percolated down from, um, you know, stuff like Esalen and, and um, you know, a lot of you know, counterculture things. Uh, and then, you know, it was all washed away by the end of the 1970s. But for a few years there, you really had a sense that anything could happen. And where things actually did happen was in the arts, so in music and in in literature and in film. Um, and I, you know, and you can see, you can still see that in some, you know, a lot of the movies that were made at that time. That you know, some of them which are sort of hokey things, um, and some of them which stand up pretty well, like you know, The Wicker Man. Uh, so I was going to say, there's also there's also a darker. There, there was that kind of transcendental side, which I guess I guess the sort of extreme commercialization of that would have been hair. But the darker side was oh, yeah. everybody wants to decode everything. Like every album, every album cover had secret meanings in it. It had messages in it. 
Um, you, know, you, you could play the Beatles backwards and hear I Buried Paul. Uh, so, so there was a kind of paranoid edge to that at the same time, wasn't there? Oh, definitely. I mean, from from today's perspective, you know, like my kids or you know, people younger than my children who are now fully-fledged adults, I'm sure they would look at we had for pop culture back then and just, you know, they would think it was just a desert that we had, you know, vinyl albums with cardboard covers. Um, but you would sit, or I would sit, and, you know, people I know would sit, a new record would come out, and it was a big deal, you know. You would get this album, mm-hmm. and you would go home, and you would have your friends over, and you would play the album, and you would listen to it. And you would stare at the cover <laughs> for hours, <laughs> you know, again and again and again. It was, you know, it was like there was a secret there that you were trying to unlock from that. And um, and as time went on, you know, when when bands were producing their album covers, they make effort to have you know covers that looked as though they have a secret there to unlock, and the music would would reflect that as well. Um, not not all of it stands up really well, but you know some of those album covers, uh, the Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. Mm. I have a lot. Mm. I have a lot of vinyl. <laughs> you know, something called something an album by a band called The Savage Resurrection, and but they're and you know the album covers really are they're these beautiful, you know they're these mandalas. Yeah, um, they, they they were an art form. It's one of the things that went away when the world went to CDs, and then the CDs went away, and now there's nothing to look at. Yeah, and now there's nothing to, well, but, you know, we have YouTube. Well, so well You can spend cool. hours looking at, you can spend out, you know, the way that people now, kids today, the way they're spending hours looking at YouTube, the way that, you know, I spend hours looking at YouTube. Yeah, that's, something that's else, you know, they're going to have the chip in the head, the implant in the head is going to be next. <laughs> And so they're going to look back, you know, fondly with great nostalgia for the time when everybody sat around watching cat videos on YouTube. (laughs) That's true. But the other thing that was true of the time, and I mean, I started buying music myself in the early 1970s. And the thing that's really changed is shared experience. You know, if a new album came out, everybody paid attention to it. Now a new album comes out, it comes out. I mean, I was reading a piece about... Uh, I think it was when the Eagles released their their greatest hits album in 1975. They sold a million copies in five days. Wow. And you're thinking, yeah. can you imagine anything getting a million downloads and then being talked about by anybody in the, in that kind of quantity? And that's one of the key changes. These pieces of music were cultural you know, elements in ways they're not really now, I don't think. Well, and they were also, they were albums. They were longer formats. I mean, I don't, you know, I'm as guilty of this as anyone else. I I do still buy albums, but, you know, usually now if I'm, a, you know, if there's a band or something I'm attracted to, it'll be on the basis of, of a couple of songs, and it's much easier to just buy the individual songs or listen to them on yeah. Spotify or whatever, you know, whereas... Back then, an album, it was, it was more like a book. You know, you had something, and the, you know, people, the, the people who recorded the album, the artists who created it, gave a lot of thought to the order in which the songs went, you know, side mm. one, side two, the, you know, the intro, the outro. Sometimes there was, you know, stuff on the, the outtake grooves. Um, so it was a very, very different listening experience. You know, you were, you know, you were supposed to sit there and listen to it from the beginning to the end. You know, you were supposed to sit there and listen to side one, and then you would turn it over, and then you would listen to side two. And then after you did that, then you would listen to the individual songs, the individual tracks, and, you know, pick the needle up and drop it down. But... Mm-hmm. It was, you know, the the level of patience and attentiveness that went into that. That is something that I think we've lost. Certainly in, in pop music, you know, yeah, I don't yeah. think you've lost it. If, if you're no. listening to opera or you know, classical music or um, you know, serious quote unquote modern music. To bring it back to Wilding Hall just a little bit, I'm curious why you chose to tell the story from 40 years distance. You know, because there's this event, it's happened in the 
early 1970s, but everybody except for the reader knows what's, what the outcome of the story is because they've all lived through it. Um, why that rather than immerse, them so, immerse readers from, and the characters from with the events as they unfold? I guess because I was thinking of writing this the way um, when you would read or when you when you do read a classic antiquarian you know ghost story, mm. it always takes place in a past that you're somewhat removed from. So when you're mm. you know when you're reading something by M. R. James, he's not necessarily writing about something that happened a hundred years ago. But he's often writing about something that happened, you know, maybe a few decades ago. And so I wanted that sort of remove um, from the time period. And, it, and you know, those stories are, you know, they're, very, they're a romantic genre. And I think having that sort of attachment allows one or at least allows me to indulge in a certain kind of you know not necessarily nostalgia but a certain kind of romanticizing of the material of the time and the place so um in the same way that you know uh, sarah water did with the little stranger you know that it's, that you're t- you're looking back mm-hmm. on a golden age that that was you know several decades earlier and something terrible happened to to destroy that golden time and this is well, the story you, you had know, mentioned earlier um, Arthur Mackin and uh, his and this may be a personal obsession of mine because I'm seeing Arthur Mackin's great god pen everywhere these days but the fact is that a lot of writers have done stories which are not versions of that, but are the, the idea that you're talking about, something recalled from decades later and nobody can quite get it right. And I know that people like John Crowley and M. John Harrison and, 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 and Peter Straub and Stephen King have all done stories that are sort of riffs on, uh, on, on, on that kind of memory, that kind of um, archaism, I guess, which it seems to me... Uh, may have been part of the English ghost story as far back as M.R. James, but it seems to me that Mackin did more than that with, than, than almost anybody had. Yeah, no, I agree completely, and and I did I did that too. I mean, Winterlong started as yep. a riff on The Great God Pan, and Black Light was a riff on um, The White People, the Arthur Mackin mm. story. And, and I, I think that that, you know... Why haven't we been able to come up with something new? I don't know. You know, I think that that maybe those are just um, those stories are such powerful templates uh, for for supernatural work. I mean, Stephen King's revival, which came out last year, which I thought was really a terrific um, book. I thought one of his best books in in a long time. Um, That was a great riff on the Great God Pan. Um, I believe he said it was and, too. You know, and and so coming, I don't know. I mean, I don't know why we keep returning to those um, those particular stories, but but um, I think that with you know with the the Eng- within the English or the British tradition, there is. I find the English landscape just very very haunting. And there, mm-hmm. there was a great article in The Guardian about a month ago about this, talking about how there's actually been this big, well, there is right now, this, this big revival in, in the arts, in the visual arts and music and in literature, kind of dealing with the eeriness of, of the, the British landscape. And it has a quality that um, I, I can see in certain parts of, the U.S., but mostly like in New England. Mm-hmm. I think there is something about the, you know, the English landscape that certainly for for me and, um, you know, uh, certainly for U.K. writers like Mike Harrison. I don't know, you know, Stephen King writes about Maine. Maine looks, you know, Maine has a lot in common with that kind of stark landscape. It does, and one one of the things that still works pretty well with Lovecraft is is these sort of 
parched rural Maine landscapes uh, that he makes. I mean, I can visualize uh, those landscapes even now. And a few other writers before King uh, picked up with that. I'm trying to think of the. I'm trying to think of the writer right now, but it's not coming to mind. But there, there is something to do with landscape and fantasy, both in New England and England. Um, and I'm sure the same thing is true with Japan and Brazil and cultures that I don't know as well in terms of their supernatural fiction. Yeah. I'm curious as well. Having chosen the rock, just to sort of segue around, uh, that sort of rock story or, or you know, template for Wilding Hall, was there any... Did you feel it was going to be difficult to give some kind of sense of the historic import of the figures and the music to the story as it's being told? Because this isn't an actual classic album. We're not being told about Fairport going off to record Legion Leaf. This is something new. The names don't carry any easy shorthand for you. I mean, if you were to write a story and say, Richard Thompson did, well, then that fills in all kinds of automatic gaps for you. You have to build this yourself. Um... Was that a challenge for the story, or was it something you could just sort of trust to evolve? Well, I just, you know, I... I, I love, um, well, you know, I love music. I love that kind of music, among other kinds of music. And I, over, you know, over the decades, I've immersed myself in the music, and I've read so many books and seen so many documentaries about... Um, about it, and for this book, I just um, really kind of went into a cra- went on a crash course in reading and watching and listening to everything I could by and about bands like Fairport um, or the Watersons um, and Nick Drake, and just tried to draw as much material out of that as I could. To create characters that would be sort of um, not directly analogous to, you know, somebody like Nick Drake or Sandy Denny or Richard Thompson, but characters that I hoped might be sort of avatars in a way for, um, you know, a certain kind of, of folk musician. And I know, you know, some people, some reviewers and readers have, have said that they felt like some of the voices of the uh, male musicians in particular, they, uh, you know, on the page, they, they couldn't quite distinguish between them. And, and I, think that's kind of, I think that's probably a fair cop. Um, but I also think that when I have read things like this, on, that on, on the page, by in biographies or, or autobiographies, it can be kind of difficult to distinguish that too. Where mm. where it really comes to life is when you're hearing those people talk. <laughs> mm. So when I heard the you know when I heard the audiobook of Wilding Hall for the first time, I thought, wow, that, you know, it worked like that. You yes. know, the same way it works if, when you're watching a behind the scenes you know music uh, video or film mm-hmm. or documentary, but. Um, but yeah, I, I guess you know I, I sort of had to hope that people who would read, um, you know, people who would read the book, they would, you know, some people would read it probably just as um, kind of a ghost story or a supernatural story, and whatever resonances were there with the the music and real mm-hmm. music or musicians sure. would not really have, you know, not mean all that much. But for people who do know anything about um, that whole uh, classic folk scene of the late 60s and, and 1970s in the UK, they probably would pick up some of the echoes there, a Fairport convention when they, you know, they went to Farley Chamberlain after um, this terrible tragedy where there was a car crash after a gig and several yeah. members of the band were killed and... Um, Two months later, you know, Joe Boyd, their manager, packed them all up and, and sent them to uh, this stately home, country house in the countryside, and they recorded, you know, this groundbreaking album there. Um, so, uh, so if you if you are familiar with that, then you'll you know you'll pick up the resonances there. Sure. But ideally, I would yeah, well, hope they wouldn't have to be. 
there was one thing I was familiar. I was familiar with with this from having been um, even older than you, Liz. Um, <laughs> but the um, one of the characters, one of the narrators, is a rock journalist, and I was reading that uh, her passages and thinking, okay, this 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 is what rock journalism sounds like, and then I thought, no, this is what rock journalism sounded like in the early seventies with the same shorthand and the same kind of. Uh, there, there, there are a couple of places where you quote her reviews, uh, and I thought, okay, that's right on. That's what Rolling Stone and Crawdaddy looked like back then. That's what they sounded like. So those, that voice is very distinctive to me, and just rang all kinds of bells. Well, thank you. Well, that was, you know, I, I can be a good mimic, <laughs> <laughs> and and I read a lot of, you know, I read all that stuff growing up. I was reading that stuff in the seventies, and. Um, I went back and read, reread a lot of it for you know research for for this book. I, you know, I just uh, I went and read so many biographies and autobiographies and books and you know groupie biographies, all of this kind of stuff. And there there was a very distinctive way of writing back then. I mean, Lester Bangs was sort of you know the high or the low water mark yeah. depending on on how you felt about his style of writing, but. But there was definitely, you know, um, another kind of more modulated voice that uh, was kind of a generic, you know, Cream or Rolling Stone or, or yeah. circus uh, uh, magazine, you know, journalism that I, I was deliberately trying to create that. One of the things that... To uh, it occurred to me when I was thinking about this um, in terms of your other work is that among current writers of, of, of fantasy and fantasy and mysteries are mostly what you've been doing um, these days I don't know anybody who writes more about the arts and artists uh, than you do and a, a wide variety of art and artists for that matter because the, the, the last novel d- dealt with um, Arthur Rimbaud and then uh, Mortal Love is about Victorian painting largely. Um, the um, Cassie novels deal with a photographer. You've dealt with Andy Warhol's Factory. Uh, the punk movement, you've, you've, you've got a kind of memorial story for Joey Ramone. Uh, so <laughs> uh, it's, it's not why do you write about the arts, but I'm wondering why don't more people write about the arts since since all these art forms you're talking about are, are numinous in a sense, in that they all imply a kind of portal into another world that uh, that seems to me to be an obvious topic for fantasy, and you're you're not the only one doing it, but you're one of the few. Yeah, I I don't I I wonder that myself. I don't know why more people aren't doing this, and and I think more people are now doing it. You know, Sarah McCary, who's a wonderful yeah. Younger writers is doing stuff like that, and you know, Colin Greenland did a great book a long time ago now, maybe fifteen, twenty years. I think it was called Look, "Looking for Helen, Searching for Helen." That was about uh, read, yeah, a British folk singer. You know, and, huh. but I do wonder why more people don't do it because it it is exactly as you you said, Gary. It is, you know, art serves as the portal, you know, it, it, it's a means to transcendence, it's, it really is the way in the real world that we can access the numinous, I mean, we re- no matter how much we want to, you know, we can't go to Narnia, <laughs> we really <laughs> want to, but we can't, and, but, but we can watch, you know, a, De- you know, a Derek Jarman film, we, we can watch, you know, a movie. We we can go to the National Gallery of Art and and we can look at um, a Bruegel painting or a Rothko or whatever. And so I I don't I really don't understand why more people, especially people writing um, the kind of stuff that you know we write or or like to love to read, why more people don't do that? Um, because to me, it just it's such it's such rich material and. It's, so beautiful and interesting, and the people who, who create this in the real world are so incredibly strange and unusual and, and fascinating. I mean, you know, you couldn't make them up. <laughs> I couldn't make them up. I, I just, you know, tend to look around there and, and find somebody, get my sights on somebody, and then try to sort of, you know, 
as I was saying, create an avatar for them or for a number of people. I was talking to our friend uh, Peter Straub about he he just recently did a a program of some sort or an art exhibit of some sort in, in San Francisco with a, an artist, which was an imaginary exhibit of paintings, imagining, imagining the school of late 19th century painters uh, from, from Germany and England and other countries, all of whom had some of this numinous otherworldly quality in common. And then I started thinking, again, um, I was reminded of this um, by uh, Wilding Hall, but I was thinking that there are paintings that I think I know that I don't. Uh, and one of them is this one, which I think it's called A Dog Has Not Jumped Down Yet from Mortal Love. Uh, oh, right. <laughs> it, it, it's, it seems like I must have seen that painting. I feel like I must have seen the painting in Caitlin Kernan's The Drowning Girl. Uh, I almost remember those paintings as though I'd seen them because it's such a powerful image of, of, of transition, I guess. Yeah, and well, and Caitlin's a great example of somebody who is do, doing this, who's doing it brilliantly. Yeah, exactly. She's, you know, she's you know who's who's taking this material and and transforming it and just doing something extraordinary with it. But yeah, exactly. Yeah, that the the painting in the Drowning Girl. That's a great example. And there are probably others I could think of. Somebody should do, uh, you know. PhD students who are looking for a dissertation topic talk about paintings and fantasy. There are probably a lot of them. Uh, <laughs> probably going back to William Morris, I suppose. Um. I'm curious. I mean, on, on a more uh, sort of uh, simple level, a lot of your work, to me at least, Liz, seems to come fit into this short novel length. What attracts you to it again and again? I mean, when I look back across, you know, Chip Crockett bunch of other stories it just seems to be something you come back to you know does it let you do something that you couldn't otherwise yeah i i think the no, i i think the novella you know the short novel length i think is for me really where i can write the best i mean like illyria and um i don't know i i think that most of the things that i've written that i am happiest with tend to be novellas or novelettes or, or short novels. I mean, Available Dark is a very short novel. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and this and, you know, Wilding Hall is a short novel. I, I think that the novella length, or if you go a little over, um, I think that is really the ideal form for writing the supernatural because you are able to, you know, if you do it right, you, you write a story that somebody can pretty much read at one sitting, and it might be a long sitting, but if you real, if you do it well, and you, you know, and you rope the reader in, and you can keep them there in the chair and maintain that mood for the amount of time that it takes them to read the story, you know, when, if you're writing a, a supernatural novel. Um, if every time somebody has to, you know, if you're if you're Stephen King, right, you're writing a, a big book. Every mm-hmm. time somebody closes that book, you're diffusing the tension. You're, you're losing it. Whatever tension, whatever mood, whatever horror or unease that you have created, when they close that book, it's it's broken. I mean, they may have nightmares. They may be walking around thinking about it, all, you know, all the time. But they still, the spell is broken. And when you pick yeah. the book back up and you open it up again, then you're having to recreate it. Whereas with a novella, you can do that all at once. You can cre- you can cast that spell, and you know from beginning to end, you, you, you can complete the circuit. Um, and I I think a lot of the best, not you know the great classic um, supernatural stories that we know are novellas, and mm-hmm. and I think Trance. that's why. And I and I think for me it just um, you know a short I mean and there are obviously there's some really gr- they're great short stories too that are great horror stories or ghost stories <laughs> but um, I think with a novella you have the the space and time to really develop character you can develop mood you can develop atmosphere you know you think of something like Oliver Onion's The Beckoning Fair One you know you create this great spooky house. 
that this guy is, you know, going into and living in alone and hearing this strange noise in it. And you, you know, for the amount of time that that story lasts, you are inhabiting that place with with the protagonist until the very end. Um, and you don't really have enough space to do that in a short story. And you can do it in a novel, but then, you know, the novel gets clogged with a lot of other stuff. You know, I think there are some really great uh, supernatural novels. I think The Girl in the, the Girl in the Swing by Richard Adams is mm-hmm. a brilliant supernatural novel that's, a, you know, a long novel, and I think that works really, really well. You know, Peter, Peter Straub has written some brilliant novels. Um, Stephen King has written some great mm-hmm. novels. But I think it's really difficult to pull off, you know. I think it can be done, but I think that... Um, I really think that the novella is, or the novelette really is kind of the ideal, you know, length for that kind of thing. And and for me, I just, I, I love writing things in that length. It gives me enough time to, mm-hmm. you know, to kind of get the job done and then, you know, leave. <laughs> Close the door. It, it, takes me like, it takes me about three weeks to write a novella. If I, if I really get fired up for something that I found over the years, that's about how long it takes. You know, the least Trumps and Illyria and, I don't know, you know, whatever other ones are there. They all took me about three weeks to do from beginning to end. So, but there's, there's, so there's, it works for me. <laughs> Well, it, it works for a lot of people as well. But, but I was going to say that there was, um, I mean, you, you're, you're absolutely right about some of these longer novels, although when you sort of disassemble some of the longer novels of, of, of Stephen King or, or Peter Straub or other, you'll find that there are multiple narratives, or you'll find that there's the same narrative repeated from multiple points of view, um, so that they're, uh, so, so that the core thing it, it, it keeps going back to Arthur Mack, and the core thing is that something really bad happened, and we're going to right. look at it from all different angles. And right, right. In a sense, the difference between a novella and a novel is how many angles you're going to look at it from. Right, exactly. And I mean, and that's what I did with Wilding Hall. It's like, okay, this is some, you know, something bad happened. What do you think happened? Well, this is what I saw. What did you think? Well, this is what I saw. Yeah. And and that's kind of, you know, I mean, it's sort of meta in a way, but that really is basically what, you know, all you get. Even something like The Great God Pan, the same story is sort of, you know, nested within itself and, and mm-hmm. kind of played, you know, kind of told more than once. And, you know, and in Peter's, and in, and in Ghost Story, you know, the, the mm-hmm. Tale is, is told and retold. And I, I guess with this kind of story as well, it's re, it's important, well, possible and valuable and important to to not answer the question too thoroughly either. You know, it's like, what did you think happened? Something bad happened. Something bad happens in Wilding Hall. Um, I was reading Gary's review of the the the, 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 the book just uh, before we started the podcast, oh. and, think, and thinking, how much do you want to know? Um, how, you know, do you want to answer the questions in the text, or do you want the text to allow to be open enough that other you know, a range of answer, answers are possible, and they create the effect that you want rather than nailing it down? Yeah, I don't like to. Um, I don't like to nail it down. I mean, I have in in other books, I've in other stories, I have tried to live not to nail it down. And I know some people don't like that. I mean, I know some readers, you know, they're readers, people who read Illyria, and they were like, well, what? You know, what was the little toy theater? What did that mean? What, what did it mean? Where, what, you know, what, what did, you know, where did it come yeah. from? Um, and in Wilding Hall, well, what happened? What does it mean? I, I don't want to tell you that. <laughs> I don't... I mean, I just don't. I, I you know, I, that's Although not what a, I'm interested in no, as a writer. Is... I, I, what I find more interesting is to, you know, I want you to have the experience of what it would be like if this actually happened to you. Yeah. If this really happened to you, you wouldn't know what happened. You, you might afterwards come up with a meaning that you would create, because that's what we do. We try to come up with narratives for or things we don't understand. But the fact is, if something inexplicable happens, 
by its nature, it's inexplicable. <laughs> <laughs> you know, we cannot explain what it is. And so well, it's, it's, I... No, there are... This is fascinating to me because... Um, there are science fiction readers want something explained. They want they want something in the background. Uh, in fantasy, you have the option of leaving that ambiguity, which does disturb some people, or you have the option of doing what I could imagine a marketing person uh, or even an agent saying this to you. You have a there's a mysterious shadowy figure at the center of the mystery uh, center of the mystery in Wilding Hall. I think it's fair to say that without spoiling anything. I could see somebody saying to you, wait a minute, you could get 300 pages out of the backstory of that figure <laughs> and make a parallel narrative, and then you've got a big blockbuster. Yeah, I know. I didn't want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> but, I mean, I know. It's, I did have people say that to me. But, that you know, that was not, I mean, for me, the challenge was to try, you know, to capture in a documentary format what it really would have been like, you know, to to have this experience. What would it have been like if you had half a dozen people in 1973 under these circumstances, you know, these people in their late teens, right. early 20s, in, you know, ha kind of recovering from a traumatic event, and they are sort of having this blissed out summer at this house, and then something happens and everybody sees that nobody and, and 40 years later they still can't make sense of it and mm -hmm. I have had experiences like that and you know I know other people who have and X number of years later we still can't make sense out of it and that's why we're still talking about it it's like what you know do you remember that what happened what the hell was that <laughs> so I I wanted to try to get the sense of that experience across, what it would feel like. I'm, I'm much more interested in kind of asking questions and, and leaving people thinking about that, wondering what it would be like. And I know for some readers it, it is frustrating, you know. Um, I have, you know, with Near Zenner, I was trying to do something similar, you know, to try to, uh, you know, again, a, a, a uh, uh, an inexplicable event that had happened years earlier and somebody is left trying to, you know, it didn't happen to him, but it happened to somebody he knew and trying to figure out what it was that happened. Um, I think there are these mysteries in the world and I think that as an artist that that is one of the responsibilities we have, or maybe it's not a responsibility, but one of the challenges we have is to try to take these mysteries and not necessarily explain them away to a reader or a mm -hmm. listener or, or a viewer, but to just say, you know, here, here is this mystery. What's, you know, it's like, take, you know, having a beautiful, I don't know, a pileated woodpecker, an ivory-billed woodpecker, here it is, it's flying, it's something strange and beautiful, mm -hmm. you haven't seen it. But you shoot it down and you dissect it and you open it, and then what do you have of it, you know? The mystery is gone and, and the bird itself is gone as well. Um, so uh, I'm much more interested in sort of knowing that it might still be out there flying around there in the, you know, in the forest, and you just get a glimpse of it now and then, and... and trying to figure out exactly what it is that you saw. Well, there, there, there are sense? mysteries. Uh, absolutely, and I, I was going to say, it goes beyond uh, fantasy, it goes beyond pastoral, it goes beyond the mysteries in the forest, because one of my favorite stories of yours, which is not even a fantasy, but certainly deals with these mysteries, is, is about crypto-aviation. It's the maiden flight of Macaulay's Belair. <laughs> and it just absolutely has that sense, except it deals with technology rather than magic. Or maybe it deals with magic a little bit. Yeah, well, technology I, I guess is one of the serious, too. <laughs> yes, it is. Absolutely. Do you, think you, feel, do you feel that having an opportunity to publish with places like Open Road, in this case, and PS Publishing, 
gives you more of an opportunity to do that like you have somebody breathing down your neck saying, come on, make it commercial? Well, yeah. I mean, if, if I really... Um, obviously, I'm not somebody who cares usually about being commercial. I, I would be very, you know, I would be very happy if, <laughs> if something I wrote, you know, all of a sudden made a million dollars. You know, it's not that yeah. I don't want that. I would, I would be delighted. Um, but, you know, that, that's not really, I am, as a writer, I am just, I am much more interested in sort of contemplating the mystery or a mystery. If it's, you know, I, I think it's probably safe to say that most of what I've written, you know, other than sort of the work for hire, um, you know, uh, Novelization, movie and things like that. I mean, I, I for the most part, I have not um, repeated myself too often, and the reason why is that I, you know, I want to try something new because I want to try something that I don't really understand. <laughs> I I want <laughs> to um, learn about something and I want to explore the mystery of something and. For me, that's what's challenging and fulfilling, you know, as an artist. And I think that when I, you know, when I do it successfully, then I can impart some of that to the reader. And you know, and I and I don't always do it successfully. I know that there have been things that I've written that I, I you know, I don't quite pull it off. But but I think that the challenge to continue to try doing that to try to take something like Wilding Hall and, and to try to, um, you know, take multiple voices to describe, you know, have different people try to describe the one strange thing that they all saw. You right. know, it's like the, the blind men and the ele- elephant, everybody trying to, you know, explain something. I mean, that, that was a, an, an artistic challenge to try to do that. And for me, it was, it was sort of a puzzle to try to figure out. And um, and for me, that that's what makes writing fun. I mean, that's what's exciting about it is getting up every day and trying to think, okay, can I pull this off? You know, well, no. Well, then I'll you know I'll try again tomorrow and see if I can do it then. You know, when I I like something like Available Dark. You know, I did not know anything about the Norwegian black metal scene and trying to to put myself in. Inside the heads of people <laughs> who would create that kind of music, and somebody who would live within, you know, the kind of, of um, landscape in Iceland, and create something like that. I mean, that that was a challenge with with um, Radiant Days to try to get inside the head of somebody like Arthur Rimbaud, who you know, who's a genius. There's no way I was going to be able to get inside that head, but I could get inside the head of you know, a, a fictional character who was a young, you know, American painter the same age as he was and was somewhat analogous to him in some ways, that, that I could, could do. Um, so uh-huh. I, you know, I, I like to try to do that. I like to, to try to give myself that challenge. So, so let me ask, it's been a little while since you've had a book out. You've now got Wilding Hall about to come out. Where are you going next? I kind of lost you there, Sorry. Jonathan. I was just saying, it's been a little while since you've had a book out. Wilding Hall is just coming out. Where are you going next? I have um, Hard Light, which is the third Castaneri novel. That will be out early next year. And um, that deals with, uh, kind of gets into um, ancient British archaeology, among other things. Uh, so that'll be out. And then I'm now starting on the fourth um, Kashmiri novel, which deals with uh, antiquarian books and Jacobean mm. magic <laughs> <laughs> and uh, an, ancient, um, an ancient text, uh, a, a real, you know, something that historically exists um, or existed, an ancient text of um, magic that uh, Casket's kind of in, involved with. So, um, so that's what I'm, I'm starting on now, and, and I hope to 
you know, work on some short fiction too. Now that I finally have some some breathing room, that would be wonderful. Um, Just out um, of curiosity, how how do your fans from uh, from your novels, the mortal love fans, the fans of Last Summer of Mars Hill, the fantasy fans, how are they reacting to these mysteries? I don't know. That's a good question. I know some. You know that there is some crossover. I know that some people. Um, you know, love all you know, love all the books. So they you know, they love Mortal Love and they love the cast books. But I know that there's also some people who miss um the kind of, you know, more lush writing and the fantastical elements in um mm. you know, in the fantasy books. But I have to say that with, with Hard Light, with the next cast book, I kind of, it, it's more like um it's actually got quite a lot of uh, crossover with something like Waking the Moon. Um, and ah. early readers, yeah, early readers and people who, who've heard portions of it have remarked on that. And so that was, that was deliberate on my part. And, and the next book is going to kind of play off that as well. So I'm kind of, you know, as the series goes on, I'm able to kind of, I, I've been starting to, um, weave in more of the other kind of writing that I do um, was mm-hmm. without, you know, I, I think without changing cast as a character, what she does, but some of the concerns that she has and some, some of the, um, you know, stuff that she's investigating is becoming a little more um, esoteric. So I think there's, there's more crossover for um, people who are fans of stuff like Blacklight and, uh, and waking the moon, especially in hard light, and I think especially in the next book, which is which is called the Book of Lamps and Banners. So um, I think be, I'm hoping there'll be quite a bit of crossover. The Book of Lamps and Banners is going to be a Castaneri novel. Yes, the Book of Lamps and Banners. That's the the working title, and that that's going to be. You a messed up your novel. formula for titles there. <laughs> I'm sorry. I know. I know. Well, I have the I I have another title which is you know, which I'm going to use for the fifth book. But this one, I think I'm going to try to do something different. So we'll see. We'll see if my, you know, if my editor lets me do it. If not, I've got another title in reserve that I can use. But, um, uh, but yeah, I can, you know, I, I don't want the cast books to become shtick. I don't want it to be, you know, her as a character to just be doing the same well, no. Over and over and over again. You know, she gets drunk, she falls down, she gets up, you know, she takes a hit of speed. And I mean, that, to me, that's not interesting as a writer. And I think it's not interesting for a reader. So she's kind of, she is um, changing somewhat, you know, she's not going into rehab or anything like that. But I think uh, I have a definite character arc for her over the novels. And so she is. Um, you know, kind of growing into that. So I'm, I'm hoping that I'll be allowed to have the title changed too. <laughs> so we'll see. Are you surprised to find yourself still writing Casneri? Uh no. I, I really, I, you know, I really enjoy the books, and and people really, really love them. They have a, they have a real following, and it's kind of fun to. I, I had never set out to write a series of books, but. Um, I found that I really enjoy it, and they're you know they're they are very they are very unconventional for crime novels. People who you know read crime novels all the time find them you know that they kind of um, they break a lot of the rules that people usually use, um, and that's because I'm you know a lot of it is just because it's not really where I, I came from. I came from a different place, but uh, as a writer. But they, you know, they have a following, and and I really, I enjoy writing them. And I'm, a, you know, with this with hard light, um, some of the territory that I went into it was much more like, you know, as I was saying, much more like waking the moon or near Zenner. And uh-huh. so I thought, you know, this is cool. This is fun. If I can do this, um, I I think that um, the people who like the cast books will will enjoy it, but I think you know people who like some of the other fantasy novels will like it too. I mean, John, uh, have you all read John Connolly's books? Do you know him, the Irish writer John Connolly? I, I know of him. I haven't read him. 
Yeah, he wrote, he wrote this very successful series of crime novels, the Charlie Parker novels with a detective, um, and uh, they're mostly set in Maine, although John Connolly himself is Irish. Um, he lived in hmm. Portland for a while. Anyway, they're these great books, and they're crime novels, um, but they have this supernatural element that he's introduced into them. And so as you read the books, there's this sort of overarching story, you know, on the one hand that, you know, he's, he's a detective or retired or former detective going after serial killers or this, that, and the other. But then there's this sort of, you know, supernatural story that's kind of behind that one. Hmm. And um, so that's that's sort of what I'm trying to do with the cast books. And, and from the first one, from Generation Lost, there, you know, I deliberately did have that flicker of the supernatural in there. You kind of mm. had to know to look for it. And so people who had read my earlier books, you know, a lot of those readers picked up on it. And people who were just reading it as sort of a straightforward crime novel didn't necessarily do it. But it's there. And it's sort of coming through more in the books as the series goes on. So, so that's kind of fun to play with, too. <laughs> I must say there must have been a... When when Available Dark came out, the second of the cast novels, I'm guessing there were a dozen horror writers out there who were thinking about that title. Damn, I could have used that. I mean, it's such a great <laughs> title. The great title. It's a great. It's I a didn't great come title. up with it. It's a well, the title. My friend, my late friend Bob Morales, he came up with that title. My, my friend Bob, who was who I miss every single day because he was sort of my. Um, you know, he he was the guy who helped me so much with whenever I was stuck with something. But he came up with um, he came up with several titles for me. He came up with Saffron and Brimstone. He came up with Available Dark. Uh, he came up with another one too. I can't remember right now. So he, he came up with the the fifth cast novel. If if and when I write it, it's going to be called mm-hmm. Negative Space, and that was another Bob title. So. Uh, Bob was Bob was the one who came up with the great titles. <laughs> <laughs> well, <laughs> well, what do you say to winter long fans or people who would like to see more science fiction? Well, probably that's not going to happen. Okay. <laughs> 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 I, to be honest, I just I feel like that's something. Um, I think that there's many people who do that so much better than me that I am, um, I think I'm not going to, uh, I'm probably not going to do that again, you know. I, I might I might write another sort of Jack Bansian story. I, I love mm-hmm. writing that, that story in the, the dying earth mode. But um, I saw uh, last week or the week before when, when I was still in the U.K., Lev Grossman gave the Tolkien Memorial Lecture at, at Oxford, and um, ah. John and I w- went up to hear him, and, uh, you know, we're talking, and I had been emailing with him before and since then and talking with him a little bit there. But it was a, it was a great talk, and what he was talking about was um, writing fantasy in the 21st century and how difficult it is to do, you know, and... Yeah. and um, he was, you know, he did he did not use the term belatedness, but it was really what he was talking about was, you know, the uh, Harold Bloom's term belatedness, yeah. which I think he he got from Auden. But just the sense that you know, oh, you know, all the great stuff has already been done, and we're sort of here playing in the ruins, and how can we make something new? And and I sort of feel like that with the sort of kind of science fiction, science fantasy I was writing 25 years ago. I. I yeah. I don't think I I could do it again. Um, I think that I I have too strong a sense of um, you know an earlier century that I was born into, and I I think that people I think there are people out there now who are much better equipped to write for this century. You know, um, I think it's very very difficult for me anyway to do, and I think it's difficult for other people to do too. You know, I mean I. I you know, I, I read a lot of stuff for review, and I also read stuff because I, I teach um, at an mm-hmm. MFA program, and it's, uh, you know, it's difficult to um, to come up with something that's really, really new. <laughs> so 
and really different. And uh, I'm kind of at a point where so much of what I read, new books that are coming out, and they remind me of something else that I've already read. And I thought, well, if I'm reading these things and they're reminding me of other things, how am I going to write something that's not going to remind me and everybody else of something that's already been written? So I think probably... I'm, I'm not going to be writing, and certainly not that kind of science fiction. Maybe something more like Bellerophon. I could see doing something like that. Well, yeah. But, yeah. but there, you know, but there's people out there doing stuff. There's, yeah. you know, young writers, emerging writers who are doing wonderful things. So I'm, I'm very happy that they're there to, you know, carry the torch. Yeah. And we should probably say that's probably about our time. We usually try and wind up around an, an hour, so. I guess what I'd like to do is say is thank you very much for making the time to talk to us about Wilding Hall and about everything else. We really appreciate it. Oh, well, you're very welcome. It is my pleasure. Thank you for, for asking me. Thank you, thank you for letting me be here with you. Yeah, it's been... Oh, we'll do it again. And we'll look forward to seeing you in um, at World Fantasy in November. Yes, and yes. And Gary, Reader I look forward to seeing you at ReaderCon when, where you Absolutely. were the, the guest of honor in July. <laughs> That'll be a thrill. Yes, yes, it will be a thrill. I'm very excited. <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, great. And Gary, as always, I will talk to you next week. Talk to you next week at this okay. time, same time, same yeah. thing or whatever it is, yeah. What it is, same what, website. When we will be, right. once again, the Cood Street Podcast. Okay, 